Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham. And I'm Hannah Schell. And we invite you to explore with us and our guests the process of discovering one's vocation. We approach the subject with eagerness and humility and the recognition that a diversity of viewpoints, religious and secular, influence how we understand vocation. Through these conversations, we hope to offer listeners better ways to understand how discerning one's purpose and connection with others is central to a meaningful life. Our guest today is Dr. Marjorie Haas, President of the Council of Independent Colleges. Prior to assuming the post at CIC in 2021, she served as the President of Rhodes College in Tennessee and Austin College in Texas. Recently, her book, A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Education, was published by Johns Hopkins. The book captures the wisdom gleaned from the many roles she has held in academia and beyond, including professor, provost, mentor, spouse, parent, and above all, leader. In a recent interview, she said that the nature of leadership is holding true to the core values and described her new role at CIC as feeling like a calling. A note to our audience, CIC administers NetView, and we are grateful for the collaborative work we do together. While Hannah and I have yet to meet you in person, Dr. Haas, we are delighted for this chance to bring you into conversation with our NetView community and others interested in vocation. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I have listened to some of these podcasts and admired the work you have done from afar, and I'm thrilled to be part of this. Great. Well, let's get started. Um, I am wondering about your own story of calling. Was there a time you experienced a sense of calling? Is there a particular moment of epiphany or maybe a setback or a crossroads in your life that you can point to? How did you come to do the work you're currently doing? There have been so many such crossroads. And, you know, I'm always a little bit wary of telling the narrative or the story of how I came to be a college president or how I came to be president of CIC only because when we tell these stories in retrospect, they always sound so clean and orderly and each thing flows into the next. But that's never the way it feels when you're in the midst of these things. So most of the key decisions that I've made that have led me to this place have been some sort of combination of a deep, irrational passion <laughs> and the kind of support and confidence of people around me that I could make that work. So everything from choosing my college major, I became a philosopher, which was accomplished by calling my mother in my first semester at university and saying, I've gone through the catalog and all the courses that I want to take are in the philosophy department. And my mother's saying, well, then you could be a philosophy major. To uh, the choices I've made in my personal life to marry my husband and to bring my children into our lives. And then to um, making the sort of very painful 
decision to leave Rhodes College, a place I was very, very happy serving, to come to CIC. So there, there are multiple such moments, and I could certainly talk in depth about any one of them. But I think what they have in common is a sense of fork in the road, multiple options, but a choice to to listen to the voice of love and passion. My 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 husband and I have a marriage motto. We've been married for more than 30 years and our marriage motto is make love, make life, make interest. And I I think those are also the guides that have led me in my in my career as well. So, Marjorie, your training is in philosophy, and you've, you've just mentioned that. And I'm interested in the way in which our disciplines sort of call us. We maybe don't think of it that way at the point of declaring a major, but what is it that first, you know, led you to be, to gravitate towards those courses in the catalog and then, um, and then study philosophy? Who are the thinkers that continue to influence your thinking, maybe even your leadership? And I'm, I'm thinking also, uh, about those thinkers where it might not be obvious if someone scanned your CV, but, uh, they just, there, they either haunt your thinking, they get under your skin, they just really have shaped how you approach the world. You know, my parents are both psychoanalysts. And so I sometimes think, I, I often say that your dissertation and perhaps even your college major is, is a symptom. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, I think that notion of calling and symptom may be, may be overlapping there. My initial attraction to philosophy really came through my interest in, longstanding interest in language and how language operates, how symbolic structures operate. Mm. I was, have always been fascinated ever since I was a little girl about how words come to have meanings. And, you know, again, my parents were both psychoanalysts. They they spent all of their time listening to people talk, and somehow people healed through that conversation. Mm. So that was interesting to me. I always loved codes and symbol systems and signs. So uh, my early course, my first semester at university, when I took a formal logic course, I think I needed a math requirement, and this seemed interesting. And I stumbled into that, and I was just really hooked. So I came into philosophy a little bit differently than many people do. Many people are hounded or haunted by an ethical question or an existential one. Hmm. I was really interested in meaning and how meaning operates. Hmm. And that's what led me into into the work I did in, in philosophy. It in terms of philosophers that have really shaped my thinking, I would say Wittgenstein and Hannah Arendt mm-hmm. are, are really significant for me. Two other thinkers and speakers that have shaped my work, not so much in my work as a philosopher, but definitely in my work as a, as a leader, um, are Abraham Lincoln and, and Martin Luther King, because there too, I'm really fascinated and moved by the way both of them were able to use language to make change and to make meaning mm. and, and to create with words. Mm-hmm. That's God's form of creation, right? <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, creating with words or making meaning with words um, is a perfect segue to talking about your new book, A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Education, which um, 
for listeners is recently available from Johns Hopkins, and I highly recommend it. It's a really accessible and um, conversational volume. I um, want wanted to ask you about, um, I guess, the approach that you took in the book, which seems to be um, as a as a form of mentorship um, to other women considering academic leadership positions. I'm wondering if you had uh, or have an influential mentor and what you believe makes a good mentor. I had many people who supported me in my work and, and many friends and advisors. I didn't have a mentor in the most classical sense, as somebody who really kind of looked out for me at all the stages of my career and gave me that guidance. There weren't a lot of women in the fields I was entering. I, I didn't have women professors in graduate school for the most part, maybe one year or there in a class. I didn't find a lot of women in my field or in leadership positions when I first entered the academy. So in some ways, I had to kind of make that up as I went along. And I also haven't, well, well let me say this. I like to distinguish between mentoring and other forms of support. Mm-hmm. And in those other forms, I've had a lot, and I think I serve in, for that for a lot of people. So advisors, I've had great advisors, people I could go to and ask hard questions who really had my best interest at heart. I've had a, many, many sponsors, people who have said, I'm going to make sure you're in the room where it happens, or I'm going to nominate you for this interesting thing, or I'm going to, uh, you know, tell somebody they need to reach out to you. Uh, and and I've had a lot of um, also people who, uh, you know, sort of cheerleaders or people who've been been happy to support my work. And and I try to do that for so many people. The book came about because I I began to run these discussion groups, these sort of structured discussion groups for women who were interested in taking on leadership roles in higher education. Initially, it was just women I knew and friends who reached out to me in my first presidency to say, I have these questions. And when I started to hear from more of them and realize how much the questions overlapped, I thought to myself, well, let's get them together in a group. We'll take eight weeks. We'll do an hour a week. We used a very primitive form of Zoom. I think it was like <laughs> Google Hangouts or something. And we would meet once a week online and talk about a specific issue. And after those eight weeks, I thought that would be the end of it. But they each, of course, told a friend or two. And then people started to call me and say, are you doing another one of those? And so I've really tried over the last dozen or so years to run one almost every semester and now I uh, don't have time to do that either. And so I thought I'll put it all down in a book. And that was really the genesis of the book. So I hope the book, when people read it, I hope the book feels like having a friend, a sister, giving you that personal advice, cheering for you, and and giving you the sort of inside scoop and uh, that you would get from uh, an advisor and a and a guide. 
Yeah, it definitely has that. It's not hard to imagine uh, women continuing to read this book together, you know, even separate from you in the room, but with your book. That's, so That's just what I hoped. Yeah. I have questions at the end of each chapter, sort of reflection and discussion questions, mm-hmm. because that was exactly my picture. You know, gather a group of friends and just set aside time to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And I think even that is a form of consciousness raising, meaning making, that can help remove a lot of the isolation that we often feel in our careers. For your male listeners, I will say that I wanted to call the book, you know, a a leadership guide for women and those who want to lead like them. Mm. In other words, I think there's plenty in here for uh, for men and non-binary people and uh, people who don't identify as a woman. But my core readership and the folks I had worked most closely with were for the most part um, those who identify as women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book uh, to me has this great balance of you know very particular forms of advice, anecdotes from your own experience, you know, uh, kind of sharing out some of your discussions, and then also just kind of bigger picture wisdom about sort of things to consider. And so anyway, it feels like it operates at several levels. Um, because we're net view, we're sort of, you know, gravitate towards questions about vocation and calling. And so I, I recognize that your book is not about that, but it does feel, I, I have the sense that those conversations that you were having with women that led to this book, that probably that was coming out, if not explicitly sort of implied. And so we're just curious to hear your thoughts on, do you think there's something, so, you know, one of the things that come out comes out in this book is that there are sort of particular challenges for women in uh, in leadership positions in academia, just for various reasons. And I, I like how you handle that. It's not an essentializing. Do you think there are um, things that are particular to how women in higher ed experience a calling into leadership? And actually, I'm thinking both that pull, this is what I want to do. But also, I've, I've definitely watched friends who were, you know, highly competent and could have gone that route, make the very conscious decision not to. And that was absolutely a vocational discernment. I mean, did you, what are your thoughts on that? What an important point that is. It's very easy, particularly once you've had some professional success, to imagine that you have to climb a ladder, particularly if you come out of higher education, right? So you have been on this path. Okay, first I need to get my undergraduate degree. Then I need to get into graduate school. Then I need to get my master's and my PhD. Then I need to get a tenure track job. Then I need to get tenure. And so you've had all of these steps sort of laid out for you what success looks like. And it's very easy to think, oh, now I've been an assistant dean, so I need to be a dean, and then I need to be a provost, and then I need to be president. That is absolutely the wrong way to think about it. And I count it as a success when the women I work with, many of them have said, you know what, that's not for me. Or maybe leadership is for me, but maybe I'd rather lead a center or a nonprofit, or Mm. maybe I would rather lead the teaching center than become a divisional dean or become provost at my college. So mm-hmm. figuring out where where this work feeds you, where it gives you joy, it is very, very important. 
it can be very challenging when you find yourself in these in these roles. A lot of us start down this path because we become sort of leaders in faculty governance or in um, you know academic or student affairs governance, and we're good at it. I sometimes say if you can get things done on a committee without leaving dead bodies in your wake, <laughs> you will eventually become a dean. And nothing in graduate school selects for either of those traits, right? So so it's sort of happenstance if you find yourself able to do those things. And when you do them, it's a really valuable skill. And people will ask you to take on additional roles. And so deciding, is that the path you want to take? Because there are a lot of sacrifices there's no way to lead complex institutions like colleges and universities without a deep sense of commitment, without a sense that this is the work of the spirit, however you define that. It doesn't need to be a religious definition, but that it is bigger than you. Mm. It is about more than just your individual career goals, because there are many, many sacrifices and none of the rewards themselves, the tangible things are enough to make up for that without that sense that you are doing something that has a value beyond you and your own sort of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this um, commitment to something beyond you, to the complex institution of a college or university is, I mean, it can feel overwhelming. It can, you know, feel inspiring all at the same time. Um we often talk about vocation in terms of responsibility and um, what you're kind of describing here is how to be responsible to to yourself, but really to others and to the communities that we serve, even mm-hmm. to causes or purposes that we find important. Um, how do you understand the obligations maybe of others to support or encourage? I mean, is there anything in this leadership call that, you know, we we should be mindful of if we're watching other people step forward? Sure. L- let me maybe say something about yeah. responsibility because I, as you were saying that, I was here, I'm, I'm Jewish, so I'm going to give a very Jewish response to this. Uh, uh, when I heard you say responsibility, I, I heard it that way about responding, right? It's a response to something. And so when you're thinking about these roles, and I'll, I'll talk perhaps about the college presidency, as, as maybe the prime example, what is it that you're responding to? What is the need, the hunger in the world that you are responding to as you take on that role? And moreover, how does that question or that demand come to you? The, the Torah res- example, right, is God says over and over again, calls your name, right? You know, Abraham, Abraham. Uh, and the correct response, the response that the, that the, the foremothers and forefathers and the prophets give is, Hineni, right? Here <laughs> I am. Um, there are interesting examples. And I actually, Hannah, I know you are a philosopher. I've written a paper on this, uh, looking at the way Levinas refers to this dialogue that the prophets have with God. And he points to the ambiguous cases. It's the cases where God 
says, hey, who's who can I send? Or it doesn't call your name exactly. And those are the examples that Levinas lifts up as the kind of core examples of that responsibility. And I think the college presidency is a lot like that. It's calling in this sense, at least as I've experienced, it's never as clear as like, God comes and speaks to me and says, Margie, it's time to take this job, right? (laughs) It's a much more ambiguous sense. And it's a sense of who will do this work and then looking around and saying, I I think I could offer something here. I think I could respond to that need that I see. So helping others hear that and think about what that looks like from their location. What is the need they're responding to? And there's so many different ways you can serve in the academy and and getting clear about what that will be. I've talked with women leaders who their vision is to serve a woman's college or an HBCU. I've talked with women where their vision is to really transform our most elite institutions into places that have a different kind of foundation. I've talked to women who feel called to work in rural environments, uh, to work in public or private institutions. So really, it's it, it, it's about a love affair with the institution and the students it serves. That has to be the who will, who can I send? Where are you? Ayaha. Ineni. That directly segues into a question I wanted to ask you about, because I do hear in this book uh, a kind of a well of an ethical sensibility. And you, you talk about uh, Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism. Um, and then there's a place where you mention, um, well, so just for NetView listeners, because there's, there's, there's definitely an interest and an attention to the overlap between virtue ethics and vocation, just because that's pretty rich in the Western tradition. I appreciated that you also mentioned there's an aspect of this in Eastern traditions, and you mentioned specifically Sun Tzu's The Art of War, and you named the qualities of a good commander, wisdom, sincerity, benevolence, courage, discipline. And then you add to those uh, traits that were identified by um, Joanna Barsh uh, about remarkable women business leaders. So dispositions toward meaning, positive framing, connecting, engaging, managing energy. Um, so readers, you can... You, uh, listeners, you can get a sense of uh, of the kind of details here. But the thing that is not on the page, but I thought I heard in the book is, and it, and it comes out when you talk about integrity, and then there's other places where you talk about character, that there really is this kind of deep ethical sensibility to not just your understanding of leadership, but these conversations that you've been having with women leaders and sort of where they're coming from and what drives them. So, I mean, you've mentioned uh, Levinas, but are there, are there, do you, can you say more about that sort of uh, well of ethical sensibility behind your thinking? It's, I'm really glad you asked about that. You know, I'm not an ethicist, I'm a philosopher, but, uh, you know, I'm only a amateur ethicist. It, that was not an area of philosophy that I, I studied. And to the extent that I have, I, I am drawn to a, a kind of virtue ethics model that it is about character, it is about development. But I, I think in terms of leadership, part of why this is such an important thing to hold on to is because the constancy of the decision making that you are forced into in leadership positions. You know, my, my definition of leadership, as I talk about in the book, is, is, uh, uh, 
uh, inspiring others to make positive change. And part of the way that leadership is accomplished is through the decisions that you make, the decisions about what to pay attention to, the decisions about who you will bring to the table, the decisions about what the rules will be. You have a lot of decision-making capacity. And sometimes you do that through consensus, and sometimes you do it through the the buck stops here, and I got to make the hard call. And I think any of us who have led through COVID certainly know that the sheer volume of decision-making that has to happen on a daily basis is astounding. And for me, at least, in order to make those decisions well, I have to have a set of principles that are guiding those decisions, and then I have to hew to them. Mm. So, in many cases, sometimes very explicitly, when I sat down with my leadership team, I was president of Rhodes College in March, the first March of COVID, when we had to make the very difficult decision to close the campus. We sat down and the first thing we did was say, what are the principles that are going to guide our decisions? And we laid them out. Mm-hmm. And they were, they, they stuck with us. We had five principles that we identified and they were things like, okay, care for the health and safety of persons, care for the quality of the academic experience, care, uh, concern and care for equity and fairness. So we had a list of these core principles. We wrote them down. We repeated them regularly in our meetings. We looked at them when we were making hard decisions. We talked about them with our community. That gave our leadership a kind of consistency mm-hmm. that it wouldn't have had. And it helped us not veer from those principles when there were lots of voices in our ears, as there often are, encouraging us to make different kinds of decisions. And I've often done that when I'm faced with difficult leadership decisions to start with what are the principles that I'm going to use. And then you see where that follows. And that is, I think, a very sort of classical philosophical way of proceeding. Not quite Kant, because I think the principles can't be as universal as Kant might imagine. And I don't think there's a (laughs) single one. And of course, the hard parts are when those principles conflict with each other and you have to navigate that. So it's still messy, but you at least are beginning with some core principles. Mm -hmm. You know, building on kind of, I think, laying a a groundwork for leadership or some, um, you know, I guess, key points that help help pave the path in any given moment. You have a part in the book in the chapter, Growing as a Leader, that you talk about um, leadership as a deeply personal and indeed a spiritual discipline. And Uh, Later in that paragraph, you say, like the biblical Jacob, I wrestle nightly with angels and almost always walk away with both a blessing and a limp. It is the hardest work I have ever done and the most meaningful. So I I love the language of a blessing and a limp and um, the idea of wrestling at night with with angels um, as what a leader does. I just, I wondered if you could unpack that a little bit more for us. I I appreciate your your noting that I, you know, again as a Jewish woman the metaphors that come to me are these metaphors from my tradition and so that image yes of wrestling with angels and the way that in that story Jacob Jacob gets the blessing but he forever 
our sages tell us, walks with a limp afterwards. And I think it is a, a helpful image for me, at least. You know, the thing about leading is that it's very, it's, it's very humbling because it's very transparent. There is no skill, talent, good thing about you that will not be reflected back to you, especially if you're a woman, because people will tell you all the time, whether it's they like the shade of your lipstick or the decision you made, you will hear back all of the good things. <laughs> and you will also see reflected back to you every flaw, every time you have failed, every time you have made a poor decision, every time you have hurt someone, every time you have moved too quickly or too slowly. All of that is visible, not only to others, but even more importantly to yourself. And so you see reflected back every day those blessings, that sense that I was guided or I found the right path. I have done this thing. This is the way my leadership is making a difference. And you you are limping because you also are aware of your many failings. It's it's very humbling. I think sometimes when we what we see in leaders is a kind of an arrogance. I think a lot of that is a defense against the visibility of the limping. Because when you lose that defensiveness, you you can't be arrogant as a leader. You you are and and that is the extent to which I think it's a spiritual development, you know, a musar as we say in in my tradition path. It's a path of self-development and of becoming ideally becoming a better person. You can't avoid doing hard, painful things. You can't, you, you're not doing your job if you don't disappoint people, if you don't sometimes fire people, if you don't sometimes tell people you didn't win the prize, you didn't earn tenure, you didn't, whatever the standard is, you didn't make it. That's part of the job. And figuring out how to do that in a way that feels principled, that feels just, that feels compassionate is essential if you are ever going to get any sleep at night. So there's been a lot of writings in the Chronicle and elsewhere lately about burnout. Uh, John Molesic has a new book out about this, and some of that is around that book. But also... Uh, across many industries, but also higher ed, what's being referred to as sort of the great resignation. Um, and there's a really interesting piece this week about what that means among faculty. It's not resignation in the sense of quitting the job, but staying and just sort of disengaging. <laughs> really great essay, actually. And I've been thinking a lot about burnout and vocation and just truly wondering whether or not vocation could be the anecdote is this a time when we really need to just like stop and do some work individually and collectively about what is our original calling and how can we get back on the path and um, you write about burnout as being a threat to women in particular women leaders because they often have to engage in a great deal of emotional and other forms of support at home and in their communities on top of uh, their position at their institutions and then also, and you just mentioned this decision fatigue. So do you, do you have some thoughts about this kind of general crisis of burnout that we're seeing, um, you know, perhaps exacerbated by the pandemic? And just what can leaders at, ind at educational institutions do to address this? 
Let me say something sort of general and theoretical and then maybe some practical things as well, uh, some practical takeaways. The general thing is that, yes, we are living through a global pandemic, right? We, it rolls off our tongue now, but it is, it is a crisis, right? This is as, uh, in some ways as significant a crisis as a world war, uh, has been or as other kinds of truly horrific global events. And it is exacerbated by the kind of political moment that we're in. It's exacerbated by the, the urgent need to reckon with racial history and racial violence in this country, the backlash against that, the whole question of sort of how we're going to deal with these kinds of questions. So this is a time of upheaval, massive change. We're in the midst of a technological revolution. I mean, look at us here zooming <laughs> and podcasting and you know speaking to each other in this in this way. And so we we are we are generationally it is our lot. It is we are we are all called to be here in this moment and it is not an easy moment. So we have to give up the idea that these are normal times or easy times and that's particularly difficult for those of us who have perhaps grown up in a time of relative plenty or a time and place of relative plenty if we are college educated, if we have grown up middle class or or more, if we are white, we, you know, things have been pretty good. And we may have had our individual struggles, but we have had not had a sense of chaos and crisis. We think of that as something previous generations focused on. Um, and now here we are, and we're we're not good at acknowledging that. So some of it, I think, is the the big picture is just to realize, you know, you know those stories of your grandparents coming from the old country and how difficult that was? Like, you're having stories to tell your grandchildren about what it's like to live through a global pandemic. So let's just start there. But the, the, the more specific thing, I think, is yes, I think this is a moment of true reckoning. What are the joys? What are the pains of the place in which you find yourself? The good that will come out of this, just like, you know, Radical changes to how work operated, uh, the roles of women, the kinds of expectations we had around opportunity and race came out of crises such as world wars or not, not other large natural disasters. So too, and I don't say that to justify them in any way, but just as an, in fact, historical fact. So too, there will be things that come out of this. And one of them may be a radical rethinking of wages a radical rethinking about how work operates, a radical rethinking about what it means to be committed to one's work. So that's all going to be chaotic and messy and painful and good mixed together. On a more practical level, some of the things and techniques that I have developed and have worked on with uh, the women I've, I've advised and that I talk about in the book may be helpful. One thing I really recommend that everybody does is make a list of the things in your work that give you energy and the things in your work that just crush your energy. And it's a very personal list. And you should be very, very honest about the things you talk about. You know, this, you, nobody has to see this list. So if, you know, making a lot of money, gives you energy that belongs on the list. If uh, getting, um, you know, to be called doctor gives you energy, put that on the list. Whatever those things are, that's only you have to look at. It's not your perfect self. It's your real self. 
And what are the things that drain your energy? You know, for me, one of the things that really drains my energy is is listening to complaining. I, I just find that challenging, whether it's my children or people I'm working with, listening to complaining is draining. It's an essential part of being a college president. You <laughs> have to listen to a certain amount of complaining and you have to do it with good grace. So knowing that that's something that drains my energy, I can work to delegate that where I can to surround it with things that feed my energy, like talking with people about their academic work or hearing students talk about their favorite class or uh, fundraising. I, I happen to like working with donors and I love being able to tell the story of the institution. So whatever it is, the things you that give you energy and the things that drain your energy. And then think about the ways that you can maximize the time that you spend on those great things and minimize the time you spend on the draining things. Every job has both. Mm-hmm. Good advice. <laughs> and even if you can't, if you can't avoid the draining things altogether, just knowing, oh yeah, today I have to spend is my draining day, or I've bunched them together, or I do my most worst draining things on Tuesday morning, and then I go take a yoga class or whatever it is helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just one sort of. I know this was a lengthy answer to a very uh, focused question, but. One last thing is that one of the things that happens to women is we lose sight of what we find energizing and what we find draining Mm. because we are pulled in so many directions and because we are often socialized to be very attuned to the feelings of others. We often are in a room thinking more about what other people in the room are feeling than what we are feeling. And when you come to kind of ground yourself in your own experience, you can say, oh, when I'm doing this, everybody around me is totally energized and I'm drained at the end of it or vice versa. Um, and then it's making sure it's you and not, you know, your children or partners or, you know, students or what have you. Marjorie, we're going to sort of turn a little bit towards some personal questions. So not as connected to the book, but, um, and, uh, we wanted to convey our sympathies about the recent passing of your father. May his memory be a blessing. And, um, uh, and the way you handled that as the president of CIC, recent president of CIC. So, uh, we received an email describing what you were going through and that this was happening. And, uh, I definitely have worked under leaders who would have handled that in a different way. And I, just appreciated your honesty about what was happening. And so I was wondering if you'd be willing to reflect a little bit on how leaders can handle grief or anybody who's in a position of authority. I, I face this teaching. I was in the middle of a teaching semester when, when my own father died and just the decisions I had to make about how much am I going to share with students and I'm going to need to be away and just, you, you know, uh, and this is part of managing the personal and the and the public. But could you say some things about grief and being in a position of authority? Yes, it's it's a really moving topic for me, both because of the loss of my my father of blessed memory, and also, and I, I'm sorry to hear about your your dad as well. Um, but also, you know, I faced this. Earlier in my career, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, just as I was making the transition from the presidency 
of Austin College, the presidency of Rhodes College. And in both of these instances, I could not do what I really wanted to do, which was crawl into bed and pull the covers over my head and not just just be in my own space of grief or anxiety or fear or healing or what have you. Um, I had responsibilities, as almost all of us do, that made that kind of hibernation impossible to to imagine. And I think also I probably would have gotten bored or disgusted with myself after a few days of that such hibernation anyway. But you're right that thinking about how you manage that, how you navigate that in these more public roles is really important. I've always tried to think about the ways that I can find, you, you have to find space to process these things on your own. You, you cannot use your students or the people who work for you as your comforters. You cannot cry on the shoulder of somebody who is looking to you for leadership. But you can bring a, a more, a slightly more processed space or way of being around these difficult issues into that space and model for others what it means to bring a full self and your full humanity into your work. And I've tried to do that. I did it, I think, as a mother of young children when I was uh, in leadership positions and showing very publicly what it meant to balance those responsibilities. I did it with breast cancer, and, and I appreciate your pointing out that in, in ways I did that also um, as in my dad's recent um, illness and loss. It, it's, it can be challenging. I knew, for example, with breast cancer that I was not only going to have to manage it myself, I was going to have to demonstrate to others how we would talk about it and what the we would say about it and where the boundaries were and how personal the questions could be and where my line mm-hmm. of talking about it would be. And the same thing here, right? Acknowledging my grief, but doing it in a way that hopefully invited other people to bring their own humanity into work. I think that modeling is essential. Certainly, it's important with our students. That's why we teach at the kinds of institutions we teach at, at institutions that are committed to vocation, is because we want to be in places where we don't imagine you leave yourself at the classroom door and you just come in as an intellect disembodied, not connected to anything beyond the most narrowest understanding of your discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can remember, um, and many faculty have this uh, experience, I think, in March 2020, walking into the classroom knowing that's where you're saying goodbye to your students. And uh, that was a rare moment in higher education where some of us, not everybody, but I I got a chance to say goodbye and process grief in the moment with students um, and then saying, I'll see you in a few days online. (laughs) Yeah. But it was the last time that I that I saw them in yes. person, and mo- you know, for for many of us, that was you know, that's just a um, it's such an impression on the heart um, of of what we did. And think how creepy it would be to not do that. 
right? right. I mean, <laughs> there'd be something creepy about not acknowledging. I, I remember talking to some colleagues uh, after 9-11, and, you know, those of us who were teaching at that moment, you know, you, you had to stop what you were doing and be in this experience. And I remember talking to a colleague who said, well, no, I, I just kept right on teaching. And, and I thought, there's a kind of inhumanity to that. I, I can't imagine how disorienting and disassociating that must have felt to the students. You know, mm-hmm. I'm on fire and you're just continuing on as though that's not happening. That's not, in my view, that's not educating. That's not teaching. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation um, your deep appreciation for language and symbol and patterns of of thought in this way. Um, I'm wondering if there are any things that you're reading or watching or listening to right now that maybe would give us an insight um, or maybe some inspiration uh, that you could share. Well, I have a whole huge list of uh, books. The my to be read book list is over here. We can <laughs> right. just uh, go right down down that. I've been listening to podcasts in uh, since I moved to Washington D.C. One of the fun things about living in Washington D.C. is that I I can walk to work and I have a kind of good city walk, uh, and so I have found that to be a great opportunity to listen to podcasts. And there's some great podcasts out. I've been listening to podcasts on Buddhism some great podcasts on philosophy. It's really been nice to be able to kind of get back into philosophy and philosophical thinking that way. So Mm -hmm. I've become a big fan of of podcasts. And I do have to give it up for the Green Bay Packers, which is the team (laughs) that we uh, uh, cheer for in our family. My husband was born in uh, right near Green Bay and in Wisconsin. And we we always laugh and say that it's in our ketubah, our marriage contract, that we will be Green Bay Packers fans. So we will be spending at least this weekend watching some football. That that is fabulous uh, um, to my ears. Aaron has a huge grin on her face right now. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. What, that actually segues into our next question because it has to do with regions and place. I mean, your career has um, taken you to many places around the country, right? So I, I understand that you're from Chicago and then moved to what Pennsylvania and then to Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, now Washington D.C. And so, uh, and we we often ask our guests this question: We're interested in the overlap of place and sense of purpose, um, and in preparing to talk to you and in thinking about posing this question to you, Marjorie, I was thinking about um, Jill Kerr Conway's memoir because um, she was the president of a college, but uh, we, we used the road from Karain, uh in our first year seminar at Monmouth College. And I've written about this for the blog. The students complained about how the first 10 plus pages are these just rich descriptions of the landscape. And it's like, oh, this is so boring. When is it going to get to, you know, the real stuff? And when we hosted her on campus, a student asked about that. And she sort of turned it back around and said, well, the place is a character in the book. And, you know, and the wiser students were sort of, oh, 
okay, now I got to rethink this. Anyway, so, I mean, I think about Wendell Berry and I think about, you know, Joan Didion just passed away and the role that California plays in her thinking, Philip Roth, right, and all of his writings in Newark, New Jersey. So, is there a particular place that holds that kind of significance for you that sort of formed who you are? Very provocative. Uh, yes and no. Um, in in some ways, because I have lived so many different places, there isn't necessarily one spot that feels like that's home. Um, and so in some sense, you know, my husband and I think of ourselves a little bit nomadic. We, we are, we're very good at making a sort of home wherever we happen to land. I, I sometimes say he's, you know, my husband is my home wherever he is. That's, that's home. And it can be in a variety of places. We, we've lived for 20 years until we came here to DC in college owned homes, presidential homes or provost homes. So, mm-hmm. you know, where you don't choose your house and it's kind of a public spot and it's, you know, beautiful, lovely homes, but not, not a, not a nest you have built yourself. So I think in order to be able to do that well, we, you know, we were, that matched us because we are, we do have a little bit of a nomadic tendency. On the other hand, the places I have lived have definitely shaped and widened and broadened my experience. Living in the South for several years was truly transformational in helping me understand how America works and what it is and what it is based on and how it grew and what kinds of compromises it has made. Mm. And living in Texas was certainly eye-opening. Memphis is a majority black city. So being a racial, you know, as a white woman, being a racial minority in my city was so growing and just, Every day taught me something new about uh, about race and about my own assumptions. Um, being uh, growing up in a in a in Chicago and and in the North Shore of Chicago, where there were lots of Jewish families, I have lived. When I moved to Texas, I met people who had never met somebody who was Jewish before. That was very eye opening. So I think I have definitely been shaped by the places that I've gone to and lived and continue to be. And I'm excited to be shaped and molded by Washington, D.C. But I wouldn't say that I have a a kind of landscape that plays so, its own character in my mm. telling and story of my life mm-hmm. in that same way. Mm-hmm. And the the nomadism, I mean, is also, uh, you know, part of a Jewish identity. My, my parents, you know, my grandparents came from Russia. So the that uh, that to this to this country so that notion that you're sort of on the move potentially i think is um and and what you carry with you is is something you 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 carry with you the things that make your home rather than mm-hmm. attached to the land maybe that's also sort of in those stories as well mm-hmm. so as the president of CIC and um having really dedicated your life to educating undergraduates in one form or another, I want to close by asking you um, about what you may offer as advice for young people today. Um, you know, as we've noted in our conversation, there are just so many things that students have had to face in these last several years, and I mean, they're 
They're sort of navigating a world that is fraught and broken and fragmented, and um, but also you know has a lot of potential for their impact. So I'm I'm wondering what you would what you would say to undergraduates. I I think what I say to the young people I know, to my children, to my students, to the young people I work with, I, I think this is a moment for a kind of ruthless interrogation about what and how you want to live. Um, sometimes we do that interrogation in a pretty superficial way. We either think, well, we want the whole uh, Instagram package, you know, wealth and beauty and this and that. Or we offer a kind of knee-jerk reaction to that. None of that matters. I will live in a tent and I will, um, you know, feed the hungry, you know, bread I make from growing my own wheat. And Either of those lifestyles might be very fulfilling, uh, might be meaningful, but you want to choose not based on what you think you should say, but on what you really want. You cannot have it all. None of us really could. It was an illusion to the extent we imagined we could. There are trade-offs. As I said, one of the trade-offs I've made in my career is we haven't had a home you know, we have lived in other people's homes and we have traveled about and we, our kids grew up in different places and we've been separated from our children at different times and from our families. We didn't choose the places we would live. That was a trade-off we made. So we, that was a way in which we were not having it all. But that trade-off was well worth it to us because it gave us the opportunity to do some things that really mattered to us. There's no one right way to do it. But to think deeply about what matters to you in terms of place and space, relationship, lifestyle. My husband, as we talked about at the beginning of this, has, you know, left his career as a professor to become a sleight of hand magician. And he tells his magic students that, um, when you choose the kind of art you're going to pursue, you're choosing a lifestyle. Like, mm. are, is this way of making art mean you're going to have to be on tour all the time? Does this way of making art mean you're going to need to invest a lot of money in the startup? So you're going to need a, a, a producer or a, um, a uh, patron so you can make this art? Is this art you can make at night or does it require daylight? Is this art, you, you know, so think about that, those kinds of questions. What is the how do you want to live and then work backwards from there? Um, easy, easy to say. Easy to say from the perspective, you know, of someone who has um, both made choices and had choices thrust upon her. But that would be the advice I would give. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just now giving it to myself, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Haas, Marjorie, thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom, sharing your thoughts. We really appreciate just your honesty, the way you attend to human relationships in your way of being a leader. Um, I've certainly appreciated uh, the ways in which you're upfront about uh, 
Jewish tradition informing who you are and, and how you lead and just the importance of integrity. So thank you for all of that. Thank you so much, Hannah. And people can find the book at, you know, uh, either through the publisher or at Amazon. You can get it on your Kindle if you want. And I hope people will read it and then pass it on to some other woman or person who um, really, you know, seems like they could they could use that support. And we're really looking for ways that we can build our CIC programming, our NetView programming around these core issues, both for our students and for our faculty and staff and academic leaders. So please feel free if you're listening to this and intrigued by some of these ideas, reach out to me, reach out to CIC. We want to hear your voices and we want to make sure we're in creating spaces where we can all do this kind of work together. And to our listeners, as always, we wish you the best on your journey in pursuing the life well-lived. Until next time. Well, we covered a lot of ground. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that her answer, I mean, if you go back sort of her first calling that led to her being a philosophy major Mm -hmm. was about words, And the power of words and language and meaning. And when I think about that in connection to the other things that Marjorie Haas just said, you know, one, this idea of, you know, just creation as God speaking the world, you know, Mm -hmm. into existence, Mm -hmm. that image. And then what the importance of words for a leader, and especially a leader during a pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? And how much this matters. I don't know, that's just a... I'm sort of left thinking about that. Yeah, I um, I like that she started with that because it's um, sort of all-encompassing and um, impactful. Uh, our words matter. I I was also struck mm-hmm. by some a way in which she was talking about mentorship, which was different than what we've heard from some of our other guests. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, some people can point to a very specific person or sequence of of people that have mentored them along the way. Um, Marjorie was really talking about, you know, this variety of support uh, that she's received throughout her life. And she does talk about in the book, too, the ways in which people maybe sponsored her work or opened doors or nominated her for things, maybe offered advice. Um, And, you know, I like the way of thinking about supporters or sponsors or advisors or mentors and that mm-hmm. there's different roles and you know different different ways in which we can we can feel support for um you know the next step in a, mm-hmm. in a professional path mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. another thing that was refreshing was you know here's someone who's just had this incredible career herself and you know hopefully still a long career ahead of her and has had these conversations with women and others about why they're called to leadership and how to do that. Mm -hmm. But then recognizing that uh, for many, they might make the decision that when she said, you don't need to climb the ladder, right? And in fact, it's quite important to stop and reflect and ask yourself, right? I mean, there, there was a deep, she didn't use the language of vocation there, but that was absolutely describing an important moment of discernment that choosing to not continue on that imagined right. ladder could be really significant. Yeah, because, um, you know, part of the discernment process for um, entering academic leadership or any sort of next step is is the idea of, you know, what what are you going to be asked to sacrifice 
Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, is that worth it? Uh, Many times it is, but, you know, she talks about the complexity of institutions that are colleges and universities and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what what you're giving up and what you're gaining and, you know, serving causes sort of beyond your own. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I just really, really love um, that the image of a leader as sort of experiencing daily the blessings of the work, but also sort of owning and um, experiencing the limp um, that yeah. comes with with all of that. And um, her her candid assessment of, of what it means to be a leader is um, so inspiring um, and also so impactful. Mm-hmm. Callings is hosted by NetView, the Network for Vocation in Undergraduate Education, an association of over 250 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment, Inc. Your hosts were Hannah Schell and Aaron Van Lanningham, and the episode was mixed by Caleb Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu. Our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. Thank you for listening. Listeners to this episode may enjoy our recent conversation with Mary Dana Hinton in an episode entitled Leading with Strength and Vulnerability. Listeners may also enjoy our conversation in Season 1 with Shirley Showalter in an episode entitled Becoming Big.